Joining us for this episode of the Swap Moto Podcast is Team Chaparral FXR Honda owner Michael Lindsay. Michael, we're just a few weeks away from the start of the Supercross season, so it's been go time for you. You and I have been talking a lot over these last few weeks. You're kind of one of my key sources as to what's happening in Southern California while I'm back here in Illinois. So give me a rundown of these last few weeks for you because this is the usual madness time anyway, except now we have a two-week buffer that's typically not there. Yeah, I think it hasn't been too, at least on our end, I mean, usually West Coast would start first week of January, so we have till Feb 20th, so we're not completely under the gun, so everybody wasn't have to work like maniacs during um, the holidays. And talking to a lot of teams, I think a lot, maybe a few more people were able to take it a little mellower this year, albeit... Um, I know New Year's Day Kawasaki team was out testing like a lot of people. Actually, our guys wanted to ride nearby. Everybody seems to still be riding on New Year's Day. But um, I think the, the challenge that's unique this year has been um, multiple factors. All of them are pretty much related to the pandemic, how the economy's reacted, how the power sports industry has reacted. Number one, um, the series, the outdoor series ran late, of course, so a lot of contracts got done late. In our case, there was OEM stuff with Honda and FC leaving. You had stuff with Suzuki get done late because of the JGR situation. Just a lot of people were getting stuff done late, whether it was OEM contracts, aftermarket, uh, gear brands, just everybody trying to figure out what the heck they wanted to do. Um, so it's drug stuff out really late. So then the ordering processes on a lot of things were late. Everybody's completely out of product. Uh, the weird miracle gift that keeps giving somehow that this pandemic has caused a explosion of interest in our industry. So, you know, everybody's sold through everything they can and they're they're It it doesn't matter where we're talking about a bar and a sprocket or a piston for an engine or a tire or anything. It's, it's just really hard to get stuff right now. And that's whether you're a, a smaller team such as ourselves or even up to some of the biggest teams I've talked to are all, you know, really trying to manage what they have right now and their lead times to when stuff is showing up before the first race is getting really tight. Uh, I mean, usually you always run into that near the holidays where it's like, okay, everybody's going to shut down and you got to plan around it. There's stuff that's been ordered well before the holidays hasn't shown up just because the the materials don't exist or people that work there in these places that make stuff have gone COVID. So they've, you know, by law had to shut down certain areas and then just nothing gets made. <laughs> Have you um, have you run into any issues similar to what happened in the spring where because part shortages are kind of common right now, you guys have reduced your riding, or is it like full tilt right now to get ready for 2021? Um, we had enough changeover and stuff. We haven't really restricted the guys. We've just been told, you know, we tell them the, the mechanics just to be cautious with what they utilize for parts. I mean, luckily, we just have two guys for Supercross, so not horrible um they don't ride a ridiculous amount some some guys in supercross i know will ride four days a week uh, some even up five our, our guys are usually two to three most commonly three they pretty much have stuck to a three day um a week rotation and the biggest thing there's just a few items that wear they're harder to get at least supercross the amount of time you're putting on the overall bike is not that high so it hasn't been bad but we always are in a position where hey the equipment's been able to operate, but our ability to maintain stuff, we're just running stuff really close to the end of its lifespan. We're, you know, we're not pushing into a danger zone by any means, but everything gets used to its maximum of what we think is tolerable just because, hey, we only have a couple of these on the shelf. So if you guys want to keep riding regularly without problems, we need to try to manage that as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, for you to have the guys that you have coming into next year, Carson Mumford and Cody Shock. I mean, great situation. Two guys that are already familiar with the Honda platform. Not a lot of changeover in the bike this year either. So you have it a lot easier than other people do, say compared to like Mitch Payton, who has an all-new Cowie 250 that they're trying to debug and get tuned up, and then a couple new riders and things like that. Like You're actually in an okay spot because you know the bike and the guys that are riding it know the bike too. Yeah, to an extent. Um, definitely the nice part is not we haven't had to reinvent the wheel testing with the guys. The downside is we did change a lot in our technical program for the offseason, so that did – it's not as bad as having a new bike, but it did reset us on engine count and certain things. There was a lot of stuff we couldn't reuse out of our old program, um, a lot of performance materials. So, yeah, there was some stuff on the shelf, but there's also been stuff we've been tied on. On the bright side, though, is we haven't had to – 
start from scratch, definitely on testing. It's just been kind of what I said before, it's just maintaining and trying to be careful with what we have. Um, we didn't have to hit the full reset. We'll get that at the end of this next year, uh, more than likely. But, um, yeah, I've been thankful because even, you know, talking about like Mitch Payne, for instance, you know, as, as we all know, the juggernaut the PC is, and I think Mitch does a great job of, you know, he's got amazing partners and a lot of stuff that they order themselves, build themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Them coming onto a new platform you saw the guys haven't started riding that new platform till what, like two weeks ago or something like that, maybe three weeks. Um, so they definitely, I think, had to be careful on how they implemented and brought that in. So it's already a tough year for anybody like them that had to deal with a new bike. I, I feel for them that's, that's a lot to deal with right now. Yeah, I think, I think too, we've seen other little things happen. Different teams have had issues. They've had to make adjustments as to what they're doing to get through this offseason. Um, I think a lot of people just know we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, without getting into the weeds on a lot of other things, the issues that a lot of people, myself included, were thinking were going to happen back in March have now caught up with us. Like when KTM and Yamaha and all those people shut their supply lines down in March and April and took those extended breaks, that it was going to catch up at some point in time. And unfortunately, it's happening at this time of year when you guys need stuff the most. Yeah, and I think it's... It's kind of interesting talking to different groups and looking at how each OEM carries it. I think it has affected the Japanese OEMs a little bit more than the Austrian group. And the only reason I say that, I think a lot of it comes down to the way they go about making stuff. This is just based off my personal experience of going over and visiting one of the Japanese OEMs before and seeing how they like tee up a product line and run, say, a 250 for like two weeks. And then they go on and build a street bike and then a scooter on that line and a bunch of other stuff. And they'll come back and make that dirt bike for maybe a couple months on that product line where I think the Austrian setup is so modular in a sense where, you know, frames where there's so much carryover. I think they – I've seen with those dealers more short run of stuff coming through where the Japanese OEMs, I think it's like there's a longer span with no materials coming in. And then they come in in larger batches. So it's a little weirder to manage. And like I said, talking to groups, it seems like amongst any of the teams that are connected to Japanese OEM, I think they're having a little bit tougher time than the Austrian side. Not to say that anybody has it good, um, but there has definitely been, I noticed, a little bit of a difference uh, depending on how those OEMs go about their how they, how often they run their parts and what size of batches and et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's weird because I think from the outside looking in, a lot of people wouldn't see the inner workings and the details of what goes into just making a motorcycle and how different the business model is from the traditional big OEMs in Japan to KTM's group with the three brands too. A completely different mindset, and we'll see how that plays out because, like you said, look how fast some bikes come and how they come in waves for KTM and then how they come in for Yamaha, Honda, and the rest like that. Um, so, yes, going forward a bit, before we can get really into 2021, we need to go back to the 2020 Fox Raceway National because in talking to you around that time and everybody in the pits, this was a key junction in Honda's racing program for 2021. We knew that Geico Honda was going to go away. We knew that Factory Honda was going to do something with the Lawrence brothers and that the rest of the guys that were under the Geico Honda tent were going to get moved around somewhere within the pit area. For you, as a guy that's now going into your second year as a Honda back team, what were those weeks like, and what was the negotiation process like in trying to figure out how much of an increase in support you were going to get for the next years? Um, it was a little odd because definitely, like everybody heard the room, the rumor mill of "Hey, are they coming? Are they going?" And I know that it it kind of. You know, Honda and all the partners. I think around Geico or around the FC operation try to give them every opportunity possible to continue that relationship. So it did kind of drag out late. Like we didn't know we'd been warned, you know, weeks prior, Hey, be prepared. If, you know, if you have the ability to take on extra workload or buy it or something, there might be something need to be done. And I kind of had some stuff sort of talked out in place, but nothing too crazy. Cause without, a definite plan it's it's hard to completely plan around so we basically found out you know the morning of the national kind of when everybody else did i remember going straight over to the truck in the morning um would talk with uh marjack and kind of found out what was going on and uh spent almost that entire day i barely got to watch 
and I barely got to watch the national. I was able to watch Cody's 450 motos. And then during that, I spent the rest of the time running around the, the pitch, like checking the head cut off, just chatting with guys, trying to figure out what everybody wanted to do. And like I said, Honda's goal initially was definitely, hey, let's there's investment in all these guys. Um, they have a lot of career span with a lot of them. Like Geico had had a lot of these guys for multiple years and they wanted to try to maintain as many of those deals as possible. So trying to figure out, you know, the next step Honda had to figure out bringing in the Lawrence bars, what that program was going to look like, how many people they were bringing from that staff, kind of seeing where the rest of that staff went. It was preferable to try to get people that had been there if possible so some of them trickled over into other programs. The cool part, I will say, is for as big of an organization as um, FC was, I was pretty impressed. Everybody there found jobs within, like, almost every single person had a job, I think, within two weeks, um, which I was a bit worried with that size of program coming out and what the year had been, if, if everybody would be able to find something. But it kind of all got worked out. Um, so got it worked out with Honda, you know, figured out. Um, we, we kind of knew ahead of time that it sounded like the Lawrence brothers were going to be the two to go in-house. So that left, you know, uh, Joe, uh, Carson, and Jeremy on the outside. I think Jeremy isn't – I don't know where that went. I've heard some different stuff. I want to elaborate on what they just – where that direction went. But it came down to basically Joe and Carson. Hey, is there a way to keep them? Myself and the, the Phoenix Honda team both tried to – make deals for each one of them. Both of us had an offer on the, you know, we both made, we each made an offer to the respective rider we were interested in. And actually Joe, Joe commented about, it, I believe, I think in a video or podcast with you guys is he almost did the Phoenix deal. Like it was super close. It came down to the last minute with him doing the Mitch thing. So the original goal was myself and Phoenix were each going to take one and kind of up our level. And it's kind of changed the hierarchy with Honda. You know, you have the HRC 250 team. And then you have myself, our team with Chaparrona, and then the Phoenix group below it that are kind of each taking a region and sort of trying to help rebuild the amateur program and kind of feed people upwards while at the same time trying to elevate our programs in the same wording. Okay. Getting Carson is a big deal for you. I mean, that's the guy that you guys picked up. We had known for a while that it was looking like he was going to go that way, but you guys really haven't been able to say a whole lot up until just recently. So what were those initial days in getting him on the bike and getting comfortable? Because while it is a similar bike to what he rode last year, it is completely different, you know, different engine package, different suspension, different everything. Um, initially, the the downsides I wish we would have had, you know, the day the national happened, we, we could have taken one of our last year's bike, but we knew we were changing the whole technical program so much there was no point in using that as a baseline for him to even try. So we had originally based all of our planning around, okay, we were going to have bike, Supercross bikes ready um, the very end of October um, with the national span for that. So it, it, a couple weeks before that, we had a couple-week gap where we had to finish getting our test bikes ready um, to get them out. At the same time, there were some other interests in Carson. So Carson rode, uh, I think he rode four different teams' bikes, including our own, I think. Um, so got to kind of hear his comparisons from a few of those, which was cool, kind of validated some of the direction we had gone on a few things, including he was one of the people trying out, um, Mitch kind of tried out for a PC position alongside Shimoda, Masterpool, and, uh, I believe Mitchell Harrison. So got some cool feedback from that. Also from the time they spent on the Geico bike. Um, but the least the bright side for us is initially he really, really liked the equipment, the setup, everything. And then you know, did that, I think, basically once he rode the bike, I think we, like, I think we did it on a, a Thursday, and we had something done by Monday of uh, the next, basically after that weekend, we had it all done and wrapped up. Mm -hmm. But uh, then there's the back end with sponsors and just the Honda thing, getting their end of their contract done. So we were riding blank bikes for a little while, just kind of keeping it low key. I mean, anybody that knows anything in the industry knew we were doing it, but just keeping it kind of low key on our end till everybody dotted their I's and cross their T's. Keeping Cody, shock was always a big part of your uh, package too. I mean, you've really put a lot into him. And it's not like this is some guy that you grew up watching at the California tracks. This is some kid from the East Coast that made an impression on you over these last few years. How has his growth been from 2020 until now? Because Supercross stuff in Utah was good. You know, you could tell he was a rookie and that he was trying to figure out some things there. With the exception of that one time he got in between Chase and, and Shane, Pretty flawless record. Um, how much has the growth been coming into next year? 
uh, huge for him. He's dude. He's got a hilarious. He's got a really weird background. So he's from Delaware, small state. Never lived at any training facilities or anything. He was in like say like Justin Cooper, Harper, and for the kind of guys he raced amateur wise. He's got some really good moto results when you look back at an amateur, but just you know lack of support, bikes breaking. Would pretty much only do the rest. Went to normal school. Actually has a college degree in CAD design. Um, but grew up in the middle of nowhere in Delaware riding just no trainers or tracks. Like he's main reason we suck with him other than I absolutely love Cody's attitude and him as a person is I truly believe watching him. Like there's a lot of untapped potential there. I mean, his ceiling for where he is now, there's a lot of growth and we've already seen it this off season with him. You know, it's kind of nice with supercross tracks as long as the layout is, Basically the same, even a year later, you can kind of compare the times off of them because, you know, the prep ends up being fairly similar. Uh, you know, he's on tracks we've ridden before. He's picked up two, two and a half seconds a lap on certain Supercross tracks that we've ridden. Um, biggest thing is his raw ability has always been there. It's just the little aspects of Supercross that are unique. Um, whoops, certain technical features, um, things on the bike that you need to learn how to do properly for Supercross, and he's been putting the time and in the work into that um he's grown a lot it'll still be interesting come we never know until you go racing but um he's made some really large gains the the downsides I, I really want to help him this year but there's also a little bit of that uh the the weight on both our shoulders i'm we're building the program at a little more rapid rate than i expected to i think in quality of what we're putting out and at the same time it puts us in a position where you know what we do next year is also going to be more looked at by our sponsors and our partners. So, uh, you know, we're trying to do everything we can for Cody to give him an opportunity. And in return, uh, hopefully, you know, he's able to step up this year because it's definitely he's he's going to, you know, make a pretty good jump in the races for us to continue this journey, which we really want to. And like I said, based on what I see of him, I, th I think his ceiling is really high and he can do it. Going into – this year, I mean, we have to ask this question as the one we ask everybody, but expectations. I mean, getting through 2020 for you just in the first place and all of the stuff that you went through with the team changeover before we even got to Utah and then the pandemic and then having Cody be your main guy through those races at Chris Blows, everything like that. Um, have things changed much going into next year? Because now you know everything's pretty stable. You don't expect a big overchange. Is this now the chance where it's like, hey, top sevens, top fives? Or do you have a little bit more open expectations as to what happens because you know anything can happen in racing? Exactly. I think anything can happen in racing. So I think there's on-track expectations, but there's also off-track expectations that we need to meet with sponsor obligations, branding, how everything looks. That's also been a huge part is not only, you know, early on it was like, okay, here's what I want to do with the equipment and here's why. And we ticked those boxes earlier. Now it's been shifting over as the guys have been riding, I've been shifting over a little bit of focus into making sure everything else is prim, proper, ready, professional, that we take that next step that as well. But on track expectations, I think because of, there's still so many variables with this year. Um, because of guys could test positive and be out of races, uh, injuries or stuff. I do keep expectations open, but I think some of the words you nailed it. I, you know, Carson's got a lot of expectations of himself, and I think people have it of him because of his background with Keiko Honda being a top touted amateur for a long time. Um, you know, I know his goals are to be up there with guys on pro circuit, guys on star. So he wants to be top five, top seven, top five, and send it to try to find podiums. I think he's, based on what we've seen of him off-season, I think he's capable once again until you go racing, you don't know. I think the kid has a lot of things that he, his racecraft's really good. Um, he's not afraid in the sense to send it in, in a sense of make things happen, which I think some guys maybe lack on Supercross tracks now or have a harder time with is, you know, you always hear the, oh, the track's really one-lined, or I just couldn't make anything happen. A little bit of scrimmaging I've seen him do and stuff with people that doesn't seem to cross his mind much. It's more or less make it happen now. Um, the other bright side, I think, for us just, there's the expectation of what the finishes are and then also just what the guys show. Cody and Carson are both really, really good starters, and I think the bikes are really good. So I think, um, you know, there's also the expectation of just where the guys run during motos and what, 
kind of perception they show to everyone else out there of what we're doing. Like, hey, these guys are they're going to be rookies. Stuff's going to happen. Like, you know, Cody is in his second year, but he's got very limited SX experience, and then Carson doesn't have any Supercross racing experience yet, just as a bit outdoor. So they're rookies. Stuff's going to happen. Stuff's going to go flying through the air. It happens. But I think at the same time, uh, between the equipment and what those two are capable of, the part of it is also just how they carry themselves in the race, and at certain moments what they're able to show is also really important. Compared to what you had last year with the handful of guys that, you know, cycled through the team and all that, that were all older and had different backgrounds, had ridden for teams or had been privateers or hadn't really been in a situation like what you were offering to two guys you have now that are, like you said, super young. I mean, you pretty much get to mold them how you want to mold them. Um, Have you seen big differences in how you manage the guys because they're both so young? Um... To an extent, like the group last year, um, big thing is like starting top. Like Chris Bose is a is a veteran. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He had a great program. He you didn't have to worry anything about with him really at all in any any sense or form like that. Um, I still have a tough time when you know you think of a job being called a team manager. I think of it more of putting all the puzzle pieces together to get the guys going. I don't. Basically, Bossomer have to tell much what to do. Uh, in the senses, we've tried to, I think, you know, it, it's partially being a smaller team, but also kind of a personal belief in seeing some operations with a million people in them. You know, having a small group isn't bad if you have the right people around those riders that they can kind of do their own thing. Like Cody and Carson ride together a lot, but they also kind of run their own programs in a sense. Um, both of them are extremely close with their mechanics, and their mechanics are people they've known a long time. Um, shocks mechanic Tony Archer. Uh, Archer was with TLD last year. He's only been a wrench for a couple of years, but he has a pro racing background before that. And Tony's really well minded in racecraft, fitness, everything. Him and Cody kind of run run their own show in a good way. I don't have to worry about him at all. Uh, Tony keeps him accountable. And then Carson kind of has that with his group, with his mechanic Pedro and uh, Budman and stuff. So we just work on making sure they have what they need to go do their job because. For the most part, everything we see him do, it's there isn't any time you have to tell them, hey, you're doing this. Like at the track, all this is a group. If we're there, you know, try to help them with little technique things on the bike. We bring up little comments like any group will like, hey, we see you could do this better. Have you tried this? Or, you know, hey, we see this on the bike. Can we work on this? Because the bright side, both these guys, too, they are younger. They are multiple in the sense of bike setup. They aren't too demanding. Um, quite often, a little more, I think, with, with Carson – a lot of times he trusts Pedro or I or the guys just to like make changes in a sense. He's not too sensitive on Supercross yet. He can tell you, of course, if it's good, you know, he thumbs up and down, like, you know, wrong direction, right direction. Um, but he trusts us, I think, to make some of those changes. Cody's a little more sensitive, but at the same time, he trusts Tony and us a lot just to kind of direct uh, them. They don't come back with anything. They haven't come back with anything yet that's made me scratch my head, to put it bluntly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. On comments. Um, Every, everything they say makes sense to the direction we're going or what we try with them. Since 2005, Risk Racing has been a leading innovator within the motocross industry, all while doing it in their own unique way. Whether you are looking for the premier motocross transport system, the Lock and Load Pro, or the EZ Utility Jug, the fuel can of choice, for me, SGB Racing's Alex Ray, Risk Racing is there to be your go-to motocross shopping destination. Head over to riskracing.com today and see their entire product line. Use code SWAP at checkout to receive 15% off the entire purchase. Hey guys, Hunter Lawrence here. Lately I've been spending a whole lot of time at the mountain bike trails in the local area on my intense primer and the thing's badass. For how good it is going up the hill, it's uh, amazing coming down the hill. It's uh, comfortable, nimble and it doesn't feel... Uh, like you're going to go over the bars every five seconds. Uh, all their bikes in their lineup are awesome. So, yeah, you're ready to get serious about training on a cross-country bike or crushing lap times at your local trails. Or if you want to go a bit further, longer and faster, they, they just brought out a new Taser e-bike, which is, uh, yeah, everyone's given the double thumbs up on. So head down to your local Intense dealer or, or purchase uh, directly at IntenseCycles.com. Check it out, guys. What's up? This is Christian Craig. 
As a motocross racer, being in top physical shape is a must, and my favorite way to train is cycling. And whether it's road biking or mountain biking, I rely on Roy Cyclery to keep my bikes in perfect running order. Roy Cyclery has been servicing Old Town Upland, California since 1962. Mention the Swap Moto Life podcast for additional discounts in the shop. Hey everyone, Don Moyetta here. Over the past 20 years, I've built a ton of cool motocross project bikes. When it comes to choosing a great wheel set, my first call is always to the crew at WUSA. Importers and distributors of Talon, Kite, Han, and Edge Hubs, the wheel building team at W is unrivaled when it comes to lacing them up to DID or Excel rims. Let's be honest now. Next, cleaning air filters or changing oil. Tightening spokes is one of the most tedious jobs when it comes to working on your bike. When it comes to wheel sets from W though, you know that they'll stay straight and true and the spokes will almost always stay tight. There's a reason that factory teams and top riders everywhere rely on W. When it comes to anything wheel related, your one-stop shop is WUSA.com. Check them out. Compared to the team last year, and like I hate to keep going back to it and like looking at it in a negative way or implying that this is in a negative way because it's not at all. It's a first-year team. Yeah. Really interesting, diverse crew of characters. You kind of went into this thing blind. I mean, you and I have talked a million times about this as friends and and just like race fans and stuff. And and seeing how excited you were at those first two Anaheim races, even though it was probably overwhelming and probably way more than you could handle with the staff that you had. Going into year two, I mean, bro, you have two factory-level mechanics now, one guy that's a championship-winning mechanic in Pedro. I mean, this is the guy that helped Jeremy Martin win a couple titles. Tony Archer, who comes, like you said, from a racing background in a factory team just last year. It's really stepped up in a lot of ways. New truck. A lot of the stuff that you have has completely motivated and like taken your program to a completely different level than it was just last year. And I think even though a lot more pressure comes with that, it seems like when you have those kinds of guys around, maybe it runs itself a little bit too because you're not – it's not some guy that you just plucked out of nowhere or somebody's friend that's going to spin wrenches that weekend. Yeah, and it's – it's last year we did what we could for the situation, and you know what it was what it was it was originally started as, hey, we want to – I wanted to help some guys go racing and get our feet wet and see if this is something that, you know, based on my theory of what to do with sponsors and what I would like to try to do with a race team, I was like, you know, there, maybe it doesn't get any bigger. Maybe it just stays here and it just stays as some bikes and parts, just helping some guys doesn't really pay anybody, but maybe, maybe it changes. I, I would have expected there to be more middle ground between year one and two in the sense of who's involved and the equipment and certain things. But at the same time, um, you know, a unique door and opportunity was opened with with the FC operation going away with Honda. It was like, okay, there's a chance to pretty much put all eggs in a path in, you know, in one basket in a sense. Or I shouldn't say it like that. It's it's not risky, but just okay, hey, double down. There's an opportunity to solidify the program and, and move it up, you know, quite a few tiers. So that's why we took the chance to kind of step up to this sense. I had like two plans. If if we wouldn't have gone our extend you know extended higher level support with Honda and done the Carson thing, I had a plan in place that would have been SX only with a little bit of outdoor stuff, and it would have been a much it would have been like I said more of a mid tier jump. But like I said, with the opportunity coming up, it was like okay, let's let's just do it. What you know, this chance is probably only going to come around one time to make it happen, so we might as well go for it. Okay. Talking about some of the stuff that you did say, you know, issues with sponsors and all these things. Not issues, but just negotiations this year. Because there for a while, it looked like you were going to go one way, and then you went the other. You don't have to get all into the nitty-gritty of those details. But how have sponsorship things been for you, A, as a second-year team, and then B, amid the current situation that we find ourselves in? The one thing that I can tell anyone as an industry guy Although power sports stuff is flying off the shelves and gear and bikes and all that that we've talked about so, so many times, as good as that is, within the industry right now, a lot of people are reducing their spins for 2021. They're erring on the side of caution rather than being like, well, we have a pocket full of new money and let's go blow it. How has it been for you guys? Uh, similar to that, and it's been interesting because yeah, the 
I'm trying to think of how to word it. It it has been at least on our end, it's been easier going to brands because it's like, hey, we even as a small team, we survived this whole COVID mess. You know, we're going to be there. Like if we manage to get through that, we can get through through about anything. So even though the year didn't have like a ton of amazing results or anything, I think there's a certain level of I don't want to say the word respect, but just expectation. Okay, they they survive. They they can go racing. It's fine. So I think there's a little bit more brand confidence. Um, kind of more on our end, we kind of knew what the burn rates are now. Stuff a little bit better. So I had a little better expectations of what to be approaching people with, what was realistic. Um, but like you said too, is yeah, everything's had this amazing year, but at the same time, brands don't have any product right now. They're, they're being really careful with budgets. A lot of them are having to. Spend also more money because their margins are about to be cut. Materials are starting to get short. Everybody's just being really conservative and doesn't know what to do about it. So by any means, I I almost can't name anybody's budget that all of a sudden got bigger. Every single brand I talked to was on a squeeze this year. So it, it's been a little tough because we're trying to take a pretty good size jump here, which of course requires more money to spend. So we're trying to still do it as conservatively as possible because yeah, those resources just don't exist. You know, a lot of brands have stepped up, but at the same time to make it comfortable, maybe not as much as um, I, I would at the end of the day like. I'm sure everybody would make more margin for error. Um, but, you know, it's it's what we need to get the job done. But it's, I, like I guess I feel for a lot of teams knowing like what all my ends got to go through and seeing what everybody's trying to do. Because there's a few other teams that are doing the same thing. Like, hey, there's some gaps to fill here. There's some good riders available. Everybody's trying to step up and keep keep these guys on track, keep good programs going, um, but trying to do it within some pretty tight windows at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the setup in amateur uh, program. You went down to the Minios with Colin Park a few weeks ago. Huge result for him, really good result for you too. How much with Supercross Futures not happening, and I know that was going to be a big, big part of your program with Honda, how much does that not happening change everything you have going on? Uh, a little bit, but the pro program changes a lot. It's not the worst thing. Like I said, that was kind of more on the the intermediate, like the middle ground plan was to do more futures-related stuff, and that definitely wasn't going to happen. Uh, we kind of figured out early on that futures wasn't going to happen this year. And then, like I said, the whole car thing came up. But it's still at the same time, we – We'd approached Honda on it. They really didn't have anything going on with AMS with FC going away. And even before that, it was kind of in a weird inner, I don't know how to say it. You know, they just had the one or two kids trying to kind of work with them to maybe do something a little more widespread. And so the amateur program for us is a little looser. Some kid, you know, um, some people were helping that are just going to be, you know, a little lighter on like bikes, parts, some help with some engines. Um, and just helping them like contingency wise and different stuff like that. But um, it's not what I had originally thought it was going to be last year. I was thinking we would actually take one or two kids to all the futures and have them around on the team. Um, but like I said, it, as we got towards the fall, it was kind of obvious like, well, crap, that's not going to work <laughs> because the future rounds aren't going to exist the way the series is going to format it. going to dub that. So just working with Honda to try to get more red bikes on track, try to create a little better hierarchy for myself and the Phoenix team and even Mark Sanyo's offer team just trying to kind of some trying to get more kids on Hondas to give us some kids to pull from in the future and just try to also help kids that really needed to go racing by any means we didn't go for you know huge huge names or anything um want to go for some kids that are on that cusp that had really good results and don't really have any support so you know what we are able to offer can actually make a difference you're not offering um, for those a, kids. You're not offering a ten year, you know, six figure salary to a two fifty B kid right now. No. <laughs> by any means. No, we're I absolutely hate that theory by all means. And and that's like I'm on is I think I'd rather do programs that have a lot of contingencies and a lot of like, you know, um, bonuses for the kids in the sense of a way between all the brains involved or the OEM is trying to make it where going racing is important i feel like a lot of these kids have become facility kids where they race the three or four times bare minimum a year and uh well they're they're trying to become professional motocross racers not professional motocross riders mm-hmm. so i think some a program set up where it entices them to race more often because there's you know more to earn on the table or something 
to allow them to support their racing career better um, is a lot better than just tossing a kid a big check and a multi-year guarantee to get them sewn up. I just need to do my braces because I've got this pro ride in three years. Yeah. Um, okay. Going forward into 2021, the big thing that happened a few weeks ago was the initial schedule release that Feld put out, and then it switched, and then there was another switch where the East and West regions flipped. Um, I understand, and, and having talked to some people at Feld, I see why they thought switching the East and the West Coast wasn't going to be that big of a deal. It would have made more sense uh, just geographically to have the West Coast races first because most of the West Coast, most of those first races were further west than what you guys are going to have now. But it also put a massive issue into everything you had going on because it basically dropped a whole month of lead time away from you. So you were a very instrumental part of that change going backwards. Can you take me through what happened in those three days and how the industry came together to switch it back with Feld? Yeah, like initially, right as soon as the schedule came out, I, I think I remember hearing, you know, we knew it was going to come out that morning. We knew there were some changes with the Arizona rounds going away, but it was kind of like, okay, what's, what's going to look like? They're going to change around a few rounds. And then schedule hits. Oh, crap, they have flipped the coast. I start getting a lot of text messages over the next about 30 minutes from other smaller teams, privateers, other people, once again, that had very certain contracts, very certain expectations that, while it may seem simple as a coast flip, was going to pretty much screw up everybody's plans. I'm getting these texts that are just straight explicit. <laughs> they cannot, shouldn't be repeated too loudly. Um, so, you know, we got a hold of the guys at, at Feld and explained to them, like, hey, you know, You guys, what the what the heck and and i understand their perspective they're like oh it's just a name change you know? and they're like, yeah but it, it's kind of a problem and uh, i understand their perspective was well we just figured that everybody that was west would go east and everybody that was east that would go west it isn't ready like it's no big deal right you know for the big the big factory teams that are running one on each co you know riders on each coast it is just a name flip but for anybody that's a single coast operation whether it's team or privateers it screwed up a lot of things with sponsors and plans and it took a little bit to explain that to them, um, you know, kind of other than the initial, I think at first they knew a couple of people would probably freak out, but they, as soon as they thought, you know, everybody would just be like, oh, it makes sense. But once we start explaining our end of, hey, contracts are written per coast, you guys actually have these coasts labeled, they are individual championships, we can get penalized in contracts by switching coasts. Certain OEMs have set up certain teams to go each coast, like one of us can flip, the other can't, like there's all these reasons why you're going to take a bunch of smaller teams that had perfectly planned around this date. And, and under any other course, any other year, it'd be easier to, to switch back. But um, kind of as we talked about earlier, power sports industry, everything being tight, we've had a lot of brands and sponsors that have gone, hey, these guys are racing, you know, six weeks before you. We're going to give them their product supply a little bit earlier because we're so tight on things. So we knew there was some stuff that we weren't going to get till around the holiday times. It's like, okay, we still have, you know, they've been operating, but our kind of cap off our, our program was six weeks ago on, on some of our stuff. Now it's like, hey, we're not going to have stuff now. Now we're racing in two weeks and we still don't have that stuff and that doesn't really work. Um, I knew a few smaller teams that literally had just gotten their bikes the day the, that announcement was made. <laughs> so that we're going to have to flip, that we're going to now be pushed to the earlier coast. And, um, like I said, it was kind of cool. It, it, it at least hopefully from Arnfeld is a lot of the team, bigger teams have had more communication with them during the whole pandemic. And I think it at least opened an opportunity where they realized, Hey, everybody in the sport has different needs and different reasons. While it may not affect the big guys, it may affect the little guys way more than you expect. And, uh, it took a couple days before it became public, but they heard from all the smaller teams that a bunch of my kind of got scared to call and explain our reasoning why. We had an answer by the next morning that the schedule was going to switch back. They just had to you know, take care of a few things on their end. Um, but they're like, hey, we, you know, we didn't realize it was going to be that big of a deal, but we totally understand where you're coming from. And yes, everybody needs to work together right now. We'll get it handled. Mm -hmm. um, you being a guy that's been around and you've seen the sport from all sides. You've been in my position where, from the outside looking in, sometimes it just seems like complete chaos. Now that you're involved in the nitty-gritty of these decisions and helping 
push for change within the sport, how well do they actually take this? Like, how well do the powers that be take criticism right now? Because I've talked with the Fell people a lot. I've talked with the AMA people a lot, MX Sports over the years, trying to kind of see where everybody's agenda is and what their plan to follow through with things are. But for you guys, it's completely different. Um, there was an old era of people, especially at Feld, that, that really were kind of rigid and stodgy to work with. But it seems like in these last five years, they've, they've gone out of their way to eliminate that whole big brother thing. Uh, I think them helping you guys out and, and admitting that there was a mistake with the schedule change initially is a huge part of that. From your perspective, has it gotten much, much better to try to communicate issues to those guys? Uh, yeah, I think, so, I think they're, like, everybody's very reasonable, everybody understands, I, what I, at least I feel like I realized is, it's not, it's not that nobody wants to work together, or there is this giant dictatorship, there is in some situations, but not overall, um, coming from, like you said, our side, from media originally, there's always this joke, like, man, our sport's a cluster, and you get into it, and it is for different reasons, honestly, at least what I feel like I've seen is it's just a lack of communication sometimes. It's not that people don't want to work together or won't when the when the correct idea is presented. It's the fact that the whole group as a whole doesn't communicate very well. Um, in a team, people, you know, a lot of team managers, a lot of guys talk, but it's just kind of talking about it just over the phone, just like, man, this sucks. Yeah, man, what are we going to do about it? It's, I think a lot of times it just, there needs to be that initiative for everybody to actually get together and do something about it. Cause it's not that they don't want to listen. If you come to them like we did with Feld, Hey, here's the group of teams. Here's the issue we have. Here's all the reasons why. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, cool. We, we totally understand. No problem. Uh, I just think in a lot of situations you will hear from one guy complain. And I've heard this too many times back. Oh, we haven't heard these complaints, but a lot of times it's just, the, the group communication isn't isn't the best in our sport, I think. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, whether it's teams or riders, you know, there's always been the talk of a riders union or a team union. I don't even know at times, like, yes, I, I think we need to get to the point there are some professional, some true organizations down the road. I think it's the only way to, you know, for people inside the sport to want to see it grow in a way that helps riders and teams. They need to get together to kind of, I wouldn't even say the words like, oh, you know, we need to demand TV money or this or that or something. I just think if everybody puts sits down and puts their heads together, we can all find ways to either reduce costs or find ways to make ourselves more valuable. Um, I just think that the sport eventually needs to get to that place because right now it isn't. The, there's not enough communication. And where I was getting at is even if it's not a fledged organization i think just if a lot of these groups talked a little bit more openly as a full group not just one guy to one guy if it's actually you know the majority speaking i think they would run into a lot more solutions a lot more often mm -hmm. i would agree a hundred percent i don't think that it's not from a lack of interest or a lack of trying uh but that's always been my number one thing is just like communication like we there's not a lot of communication sometimes you have to hunt and peck through different websites or whatever to even find the most simple details that, that are so readily accessible in other forms of motorsport and stuff like that. But, you know, that's something that we're all working for uh, day by day, and, and the communication thing will get better as long as guys like you, myself, and other people want to, to make it better and communicate more. Um, going into this, like, last few questions, because, you know, we've been on the phone for 45 minutes now. How does it feel to be one of the guys that even just in your second year, you now get to help dictate some of those changes or help kind of steer the direction of the sport that you love so much? I mean, you, you wouldn't do this unless you really, really cared about motorcycling. Everybody knows you're a race fan. Everybody knows like how, how much you care about the sport at heart. So it has to be pretty fulfilling in just the second year of the team running that you've made a lot of really good change and helped kind of dictate little different things within your part of the industry? Yes, I know. Like, um, I'd like to do more, but I don't, like you said, little things that we haven't done so far. I'm happy to have, you know, one or two little things been able to do something. And like I said, I don't think it's, I don't want to see, 
sit here and be like, yeah, I've got all these great ideas. I think a lot of guys I talk to all have really similar ideas. I think it's just what I'd said before about group communication, acting them. Um, like the thing that happened with Feld is there was all these scenes that were on the exact same page as I am for the exact same reasons. It was just about kind of getting everybody to communicate that out because I wouldn't say it end of the day everybody's got unique ideas i have a couple in which i strongly believe in need to need to happen but a lot of them that i bring up whether it's you know people are newer to the the industry or even older a lot of them have a lot of the same perspective um i think it's just you know figuring out that hey we do have the ability to enact these ideas and just going forward and wanting to keep progressing and and i understand also being on this end is just how stressful it is running the team side is there is more I'd like to do right now, but at the same time, at times these teams and the staff have to be selfish and focus on themselves. Like we are right now. It's like, Hey, we're about to go racing. Like I'd love to work on some of these ideas more and, and communicate with guys more and, and work towards these changes or some ideas that we can present to change the sport. But at the same time, holy crap, we're about to go racing and I have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's the hard part is balancing that aspect of you know your immediate goals in the terms of what matters directly to your team, your, your selfish motives versus uh, group motives, um, just trying to balance that out and find the time and not becoming jaded and continuing to focus on what I want to do with my team, um, trying to keep a, a wider vision of, hey, you know, I got into this for the reason of, I, I'll say like, like race teams don't. Uh, yes, race teams can make money. I didn't get in this expecting to build a race team that's gonna be some juggernaut or make me money in any way. It's just I almost want to call it a bucket list item in the sense of in the industry, did the media stuff, uh, done riding, done testing, all this stuff. It's like, well, you know, here's one area I'd like to explore and see what it's like and and see what lasting impression I can leave. Uh, whether that means you know I would hope it lasts long term. I'd like to build something that is self-sustainable, that can continue to house riders and staff and give people an opportunity in this industry. And hopefully it, it continues to become strong enough that, you know, the team as it grows, of course, in a sense, our position or power in the sport grows, maybe, you know, it, it allows me down the road as well to be able to help guide. And I, I hate to come across where guide the sport. I don't think by any means I have some thought, like I said, it's better than anybody else's. I just, I, I'd like to be more vocal and I'd like to be more open. I think me and you talk about is I share a lot of uh, uh, the same interests as you with MotoGP and F1. And I just see whether it's the principles of the team or the ownership and stuff seem to be more involved um, publicly, more involved in how the sport is moving. I think a little bit more than Moto is right now. And I, I don't think it's just me. I think like any of the guys that have been here a long time can all make it happen. I think it's just slowly working with all the powers that be to kind of head that direction. Yeah, you're not trying to stage like a Bernie Ecclestone coup and take this oh, thing God, over. No. no, you're not trying to own Supercross in like three to five years. That sounds like a horrible idea. <laughs> all right, um, we'll wrap this thing up. Who is one person, you know, talking about all the, you know, super fan stuff of racing that we are, and we know the management side of things too, like who's the power players in different race teams in different categories like F1, MotoGP, MXGP. Who is someone that you really wish that you could get like an hour and a half conversation with to pick their brain as to how do you run a high-level race team of that sort? Is there somebody that you look at that's already in a position similar to you elsewhere and you're like, I like what that person's doing. I should kind of see what they do, and then try to apply it in my own ways? Uh, if we're speaking truly of an our sport of being a huge F1 fan, I would kill for 30 minutes of total Wolf's time. I think anybody in a motorsports situation probably would from the Mercedes F1 team. I can be I would love to speak with is just any of the higher-end staff from what was the Force India, now the Force Point team at F1, just because of what they've been able to do year over year on a budget and continuing pressure from above of possible collapse of, of the team internally is how they've been able to manage and continue to grow that thing year over year. And now basically they're becoming a, a factory team next year in, in a sense. Um, so those two, those two heavily, heavily interest me. I wish I could uh, steal some of their time and then even our own sport. Uh, I was, you know, from the media side, there were certain teammates, 
I spoke to that I speak to, I try to speak to now more than on the team side, just to learn from and uh, just to try to grow from and, and get some experience from. Uh, but even in our end of the sport, I had started to speak to like Marjack more from the FC team and in the few conversations with him, I've learned a lot. And also I've had a gun, have a few short conversations with like Mitch Payne. Um, I'd love to pick his brain more as well, just because same thing, somebody has been able to do it uh, so long and so successfully. All right. Last question. We're about, I think seven, eight weeks away from you guys getting everything started. February 20th is the kickoff date for the GBD West coast region. How do these next weeks look? Are there a lot of sleepless nights, or do you have a little bit of a buffer right now that you you feel confident that everything can get done without too much panic? Yeah, I think every day you still just have to keep like, well, I keep working through. It's just kind of keep like a continuous grind. Luckily, it's not full twenty four hour nighters. Um, there's certain things that have been done well ahead of schedule, which I'm stoked on with some truck stuff. There's a few things I know that'll drag out towards the end of the month. A few things we need to get ready into the truck and some stuff that's still incoming on orders but i'd say so far i'm not too horribly stressed out about it it's not not like oh my god how are we going to get this thing to the rate this and this and this um there are some things that you know we know aren't going to be you know with the next most most january a lot of stuff we you know first week or two january a lot of backlogged orders are coming in so certain things for the practice bike start loading on the trucks which won't be too bad um, the race bikes will be built fairly early. I'm sure just like with anything with the team, there's going to be some item last minute, but compared to last year where it felt like 90% of what we were doing last minute, I would say maybe five to 10% the last minute, even, even if that, so it, it's not too bad. Nobody's having to pull like full weekend duty right now, which is nice. Everybody's got fairly, normal life the guy i think the mechanics everybody's been able to kind of enjoy the holidays and not have to go full full, full um, rush mode mm-hmm. cool all right but hey thank you for spending so much time on the phone with me excited to see what happens for the fxr chaparral honda team next year we'll be having a lot of fun we'll be talking a lot more um yeah keep us posted on how everything goes and we'll see you in orlando see you there